the valley was gone. We did as the Debbie said, but we never get up to the stars and bring the breakfast up to bed. Hello, hello, hello. This is Sean Clark, and you're listening to episode 29 of the God's Own Scale podcast, where big things come in small packages. Today I'm talking to Six Mil Supremo, a Six Mil Giant, if you will, Mr. John Bleasdale of the Grey Mile blog. John is a veteran gamer, having played war games since the 70s, but for the last 10 years or so, almost exclusively in Six Mil almost exclusively solo. He also games in what used to be called the Grand Manor, using more traditional rules, where figure ratios and individual casualties count. Somewhat against the current trend within the six-mile hobby, it's a fascinating insight into one gamer's passion for history and wargaming. In the news, a non-related six mil story actually, but of interest concerning the wider industry, is the fact that the old Hinchcliffe range has been taken up by Lancashire Games and SNA Scenics. I'm sure many of you have owned at some point in time a few of these classic figures, I certainly did. They were the first figures that I owned. Dependent on price point, I could be tempted to resurrect my long-dormant imaginations campaign between Vainlund and Pushkia. Watch this space uh, for updates, but from various bits around the web, it looks like they'll be available sometime after Easter. As of the 16th of March, Paul and Sally from Calistra remain committed to running the wonderful Hammerhead show on the 31st of July. This will be over four weeks since uh, the lockdown should be lifted, which is around about the 21st of June, all being well. And it's encouraging to see plans still going ahead for a return to normality. Paul and Sally, I know, are working hard with the venue to ensure the event is as safe as possible and I'll be keeping a close eye on how this develops, and if it does go ahead, I shall certainly be in attendance, as I'm sure will many of the War Games community who have been starved of shows for the last 18 months or so. So, you're not here to listen to my voice wittering on. You're here for the interview with John. So without further ado... Let's talk about six. Mademoiselle from Armandier's say to you, sing it with all your heart and soul and see everyone ride up the pole. Mademoiselle from Armandier. I think we're on episode 29. Just let me check 29. Yeah. Uh, there we go. Okay. Uh, Welcome to episode 29 of the God's Own Scale podcast, and I have a new voice to the podcast today. I'm always really pleased to get new voices on, and for uh, some people who've uh, never perhaps podcasted before or had their voice heard other than uh, through other media, I've got Mr. John Bleasdale with us. Hi, John. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Sean and yourself? I'm not too bad. I'm always happy once the technology is working. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. I am a Luddite, I'm afraid, which is completely yeah. the wrong thing when you're running such a thing as a podcast because uh, my uh, <laughs> my uh, <laughs> IT skills are always pushed to the limit almost every episode. <laughs> and uh, they're pretty limited, mate, to be honest. So, uh, yeah. But yes, I'm fine. Thank you. And and thank you for joining me. Um, well, thanks for inviting me on. It's, uh... No, no. Well, uh, you are uh, part of a, a short list of people that um, I've been intending to ask to come onto the show for some time, principally through your War Games blog uh, on Blogger. Now, I'm going to try and pronounce the name of it, but you're going to correct me in a, in a second. I'm going to say Great gr- Grimouch's solo wargaming blog. How was that? Yeah, I call I say Grimouch, but it could be anything really. It's uh, I think you you picked up on the, a previous uh, episode that it was uh, one of David Gemmell's characters in a book. And I yes. picked it pu- picked it purely because I didn't think anybody else would have heard of it. But <laughs> <laughs> so when you when you want a, a username, it's uh, one that nobody else has thought of. So, uh, but yeah, that, that's the history behind that. So. Right. Okay. Are you, are you a fan of David Gemmell then? Yes. Yes. Uh, it's it's a while since I've read any of his books now because because he passed away a few years ago. But uh, that's right. Yeah, I thought it's superb book. Superb. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've, yeah, I'm a big fan as well. I, I yeah. will admit it was through a Google search <laughs> as opposed to intimate knowledge <laughs> of characters in Gamel's books, but uh, <laughs> I've read, read quite a lot of his uh, his books. But so yeah. we'll go with Gr- I can't even Grimal. remember. What I said Grimal. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, so so, <laughs> so this is your uh, exposure to the world, isn't it? The solo wargaming blog that uh, you've have running for a few years now i know and we'll get on to talk about shortly but as with any new guest on the show i always like to dive under the hood and and see what makes uh, the person tick wargaming wise and, and where they come from and how, how they got into the hobby the strange world of wargaming that we all love and spend far too much money on and far too much time on so what's uh, what's your background john in the hobby I've been wargaming in some shape or form. I think I can—I must have been only about four or five years old at the time, but I can remember having about half a dozen or so uh, just toy soldiers in red and blue. And I can remember looking at them thinking they should be scrapping with each other. And effectively, from that point onwards, <laughs> I've been wargaming. Um, I mean, obviously, you're talking about the, the early 60s now, so the mid-60s, so it's very much the airfix period. Um, and uh, I had... Um, I used to get pocket money of two shillings a week, which just happened to be a box of Airfix figures because all the shops stopped them. So I just walked off each week to the local shop, got myself a box of Airfix figures, and all my mates were doing the same thing. You know, all of us, it was just that era, you know, the era of Zulu, which I saw at the cinema, and all this stuff fired your imagination. Obviously, World War II was still fresh in the memory of a lot of the population then. So you had... One of my favourite comics was the Victor comic, which a lot of daring do's in there. And and all of that, just as a young lad, just fired your imagination. So throughout the whole of the 60s, really, uh, me and my mates used to get together and basically throw things at soldiers. That's, that was our wargaming. <laughs> you know, stack them up in the garden, throw rocks, whatever, at them. Including, of course... <laughs> and of course, that uh, bit of technology where they uh, they produced was the the cannon, the spring-loaded cannon. Oh, I think yeah. it was the Gainsley, whatever. 
That's right. Yeah, when you ran out of shells, you used matchsticks. <laughs> uh, and that carried on really up until about, I think it was 1970, when the Eureka moment arrived, when I was bought uh, Introduction to Battle Games by Terry Wise. And this book just blew me away because lots of photographs in the book, which was unusual at the time. It was mainly black and white, but it was all their fixed figures and it was all stuff I had. And I looked at this and thought, God almighty, you know, this is what I've got and this is what I can do with my figures. Uh, and there were rules in there which actually had dice. And at that point, really, I suppose you could say, is when I started gaming properly, um, using Terry's rules initially. And then in 71, I joined the Seal Knot with several of my friends, which brought me an interest into the English Civil War. Uh, and r really then, from the 70s, through the 70s, it was very much getting into seriously. So it was very much DYRG rules, uh, still ethics figures, apart from my English Civil War, which were 25 mil Hinchcliffe and minifigs. Because uh, it's quite expensive when you're on pocket money, but the local shop used to stock them in a display cabinet. And you just simply told the shop owner how many of each want you wanted. So each week I'd go along there and buy, I don't know, four or five figures. And it built up over a period of time. Uh, so that was my sort of most significant collection of 25 mil figures. I also, during that period, um, dabbled in micro armor, uh, came across Hurwitz and Ross for the first time. Um, and again, it was mainly World War II stuff with them. And it, it, that's what sparked my interest in the mi micro scales. Because it obviously struck, struck me is that I could do so much more with these in terms of size of battle. Another playing area. Um, then in the 80s, uh, I obviously got married, had family, and that distracted from gaming quite a bit. I started a new career, moved from the southeast to the southwest of the country. And there was all sorts of things that conspired against wargaming. Uh, so three or four years, it almost stopped completely until I think it was about 1990, 91. Um, I went to a war game show in Poole in Dorset, and it was uh, at the Henry Harbin School. There used to be a big show, um, that, uh, mainly demonstration games, but throughout the various classrooms and the, the main hall had quite extensive displays on. And I happened to be walking around one which caught my eye, and it was um, an Ancients game, a DBM. And I think it had just come out at the time. It had just been released, and I'd heard about DBA, but didn't really appeal to me much because I preferred the large battles. I saw this game and sat and watched it for a while. I thought, this is pretty damn good compared to what I've been used to in the past. And so from the 90s, having seen that, I started Ancients Gaming properly with obviously DBM rules um, and got into Fire and Fury at the time, Rapid Fire for World War II, and it was all 15 mil at this stage, using Peter Pig figures, Essex and so on. Um, in the late 90s, I, uh, I tried my hand at competition gaming, which had mixed results. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I got some quite, I mean, most of the games that I played were great fun, but there's just one or two that, you know, that I thought, no, this is, this is not really for me. I, I think there was one that stand out one where the first competition I, I entered was at Dunstable. It was, I can't remember what it's called now, but it was a, a national, on the national network. It's four games you've played. Yeah. It was what, sorry? Was it Roll Call? Yeah. Something like that, yeah. It was something like that. Yes, it was something yeah. like that, yeah. yeah. And um, 
It's over two days. I've played four games. The first three I've played, and these are the first time I've ever played in competitions, were great. They were great opponents, really good fun. Uh, and the, the, the army I was using was an early Imperial Roman army, which was just cobbled together for the competition. I didn't even give any thought about composition, as long as it complied with the actual book. That's all I cared about. It was available figures. But it had four commands, which was unusual. Most, most had three commands. That final game, the, the person, person I opposed was a full-on gamer. He was going to win this competition no matter what was going to happen. And his opening line to me when I put this, this force out was, you've got four commands. Good God almighty, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and the entire game. <laughs> I, I thought you almost like a surreal moment. You're thinking, "Am I hearing this?" And the entire game consisted of him saying, "You've moved that half a millimeter too far, and you've not complied with this rule any quite." And by the end of the game, I thought, "Oh God Almighty! If it's all like this, no." I did persevere for a while, uh, but I did give up in the end. I thought that it was good fun. I can see why people do it, uh, and it is only a minority of people like that. But. Uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, so at the end of the 90s, I'd be playing DBM pretty much throughout the 90s. But I think the problem with it I found, and it comes, I'll come on to this a bit later maybe with the 6 mil stuff and why I game with rules like General Brigade, is that I've never really been an element-based gamer. I go back to Terry Wise's rules and Don Feniston's, all those of the, the 70s, where figures are individual, individually based, not even based at all. And casualties are in numbers of figures as opposed to entire bases. And it's something that's always stuck with me. I've always thought that games like DBM, where you've got a base of figures that are removed, um, it's a bit like a board game. And it's not, not really what uh, inspires me. Uh, having played DBM throughout, as I said, throughout the 90s, I found that setting up a, a an army each side using a point system, you're just going through the mill in the end. It's the same games played over and over again, maybe slight variations. But I missed playing campaigns, scenario-based games, and um, stuff that was not quite so formulaic, if you like. So by the end of the 90s, um, DBM for me was starting to drop away. I was looking at other rules for ancients like WAB uh, that had come along then. Um, I never really, Ancients really just drifted away from me for a while. Uh, Fire and Fury I continued uh, with for a period of time, but again, I found that the element-based rules uh, didn't really uh, connect with me too well. And then in the early noughties, I um, came across General de Brigade rules, and uh, I had a chance to visit Waterloo at the time, which was a, a battle that, Going back to 1970, really, it's when the film came out, which I saw at the time, fired my imagination, thought, I've got to do Waterloo at some point. Came across General the Brigade Rules, visited Waterloo, the battlefield as well, and I thought, I've got to do this at some point. Um, but at that stage, we're still very much into 15 mil. Fell in love with General the Brigade. I, we, I went to a, um, it was a war games weekend. It was a, like a holiday centre uh, in the South Wales it didn't last long, I think. The, the chap who ran it had AB figures, owned AB figures at the time. Uh, it was a fantastic weekend. We fought Francis Dianora, if I pronounced that right, uh, on a huge board, thousands of figures. Dave Brown was there of the rules. And it was great. And I thought, this really is 
what is you know connects with me as a war gamer. So I stuck with General the Big Ed rules. And through the noughties, it, I continued playing Napoleonics. Um, I kept, fell away a bit from the club scene. I did belong to a club for a while. But again, through house moves and various things, I fell away from that a bit, um, went more solo direction, uh, play, and played with my sons as well. They, they were sort of into it, but using my figures. They couldn't be bothered to paint their own. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so throughout the noughties, it was Napoleonics, uh, Rapid Fire World War II, up until about, uh, I think it was about 2009, I came across Bacchus for the first time. And I, I saw their figures on their website. I thought, crikey, six mil have come on <laughs> since I knew them. And I ordered some just to see what they were like. And I thought, these are fantastic. And at that point, that's when I, I'll cover perhaps in a bit more detail a bit later on as to why I got into six mil. But it, that it was at the point I thought, right, six mil is definitely going to be the way to go for Waterloo. Uh, so really, from that point onwards, and through the last 10, 11 years, is pretty much what you see on the blog. 15 mil gradually faded away. I came over more and more towards 6 mil. And by I've got to the stage for the last two or three years, I was now just purely in 6 mil. So that's a really potted history of how I've come to the, uh, the, the where we are at now. It's missed out a lot, but there you are. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's absolutely, absolutely perfect, John. And uh, it's an interesting one because um, I've sort of been on a similar journey, I think, um, in that 15 mil. And I have collected 28 mil, 25 mil in the past, but n never seriously uh i mean to the point where i've got big collections of them and uh, 15 mil was always um my scale uh mainly with P the peter pick uh, figures that i may have uh, mentioned before on the podcast but um as i've grown older and maybe a little maturer i don't know probably not actually <laughs> uh I've, I've 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 begun to want to refight the the battles from history as opposed to um, these pickup games that you might play, that which is very much the DBM model, isn't it? Where you turn up with however many points you've agreed to, and and you, as you've said, and that's really struck a chord with me. You essentially play the same game over and over again, don't you? Um, I, I don't know if there was ever scenarios as such in DBM. I know there was in WAB, which I, I did a little bit of when WAB first came out. Um, but essentially, it was all just a meeting engagement and um, very much uh, about millimetres, wasn't it, and angles? Yeah, I, I did try and fight, start a campaign using uh, DBM and, like I say, some of the scenarios, but I just couldn't make them work for me. The, um, it, it just You fell back into that line up opposite the, your, your opponent and just gone through the same thing again. It, um, yeah, I couldn't make it work the way I wanted it to anyway, so... Uh. I was always fascinated by DBM. I played a little bit of DBA, but um, I was always fascinated by uh, DBM and, and 7th edition, actually, before that, uh, whenever I went to the Derby War Games show where they'd have the World Championships. Um, and you'd go into one of the halls there when it was used to be at the old um, assembly rooms. Uh, and it was it was just a sea of war gamers playing 
7th edition and then eventually DBM when DBM came along. And it was all very serious. There didn't seem to be much <laughs> fun going on in there. <laughs> in fact, there'd be quite a few arguments and they'd be the interesting yeah. bits. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I did get, uh, I, I, I bought the 7th edition rules, but I, I couldn't, I just couldn't get into them at all. Uh, I played 6th edition. It goes back to the you know the late seventies, early eighties, but I uh, I just couldn't get into the seventh edition. I don't know why DBM clicked with me the way it did, not seventh edition. Obviously, it was a progression from it, but uh, but I, I think it was there was many aspects of DBM was good fun, but it just didn't for, as a wargaming hobby. It, there was bits missing from it that I found didn't really work for me in the end. You know, it, uh, and certainly in that competition environment. Uh, it's a it's a very different beast, isn't it? Wargaming when you're in a competition, and I've I've played I played uh, two or three web competitions back in the day, and uh, one or two other uh, competitions, um, and I I found it really didn't suit my car character. It didn't help that I was rubbish at them, so <laughs> I'd lose <laughs> just about every game I'd ever play, uh, which probably didn't help my view of competition gaming. But yeah, it's a very different beast, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I'm mean, I just thinking. <laughs> there's a, a game I played again. It, it was, in fact, I think it was the last game I played in a competition, which really sealed it for me. I had a Wars of the Roses army, which was expensive in points, and I happened to be opposing a, uh, I think it was a barbarian army, and I knew that if he was going to get around my flanks, it just simply destroyed me. He'd roll me up. So I angled. I my opening moves. I angled my uh, army so that the flanks were on the board edges <laughs> from one side to the edge. <laughs> Totally ridiculous, really. I mean, but he couldn't get round. He couldn't get round my flanks. So he advanced, sat there while I fired off. I think it was about one shot from my bows, and then did nothing and just complained. <laughs> and that was the <laughs> that was the entire game. Oh, so it's one roll of the dice was the entire game. And I, I thought after that, well, I can sort of see his point, but it's a, it's a competition. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm playing to win and he's playing to win, but I thought, no, this is just <laughs> just yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> it is a little bit, isn't it? I mean, yeah, and it's why I've sort of shied away from it, certainly um, over the last few years. But so uh, you were a reenactor then for a short period. Yeah, I did it for about uh, ten years in uh, well, it was still not. So I joined Willie Wallace Regiment. Um, which at the time was the parliamentarian army, which detached itself from the seal, not became the English Civil War Society. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, um, but yeah, it was interesting times in the seventies because it was less about um, uh, living history and more about having a scrap on on the battlefield. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, it was. I don't, I don't know if you saw any of those reenactments, but there were. And there's pictures of them. It was like rugby scrums with the pike pushes. <laughs> it was a legalised pitch-up. Legalised pitch-up. Yeah, right. It was damn good fun, but not very realistic. But, uh, no, uh, yeah, no. but that's, uh, it, it was good fun. Uh, to, and it was mainly through uh, starting a young family that I just couldn't continue with it. But it was good. Yeah. Yeah. Good at the time, anyway. Yeah. And has that interest in the English Civil War continued since then? It has. It's... Uh, it has, but it's, this has been a bit of a hiatus. When I had a 15 mil army, which I, I recently sold, uh, I've just started collecting, and you'll see from the blog, I've been painting some uh, 6 mil English Civil War uh, yeah. figures. I'm aiming to do mainly uh, historical scenarios rather than campaigns. Uh, the big one I want, I've got coming up, probably not this year, but will be Edge Hill. It's a, right. it's a battle I've always wanted to do, and I've never got around to doing it. 
uh, I want to do it some justice. So I should end up with about maybe 3,000 figures or so on the board. So hopefully it'll look pretty good. I um, say that'll look pretty good, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, so English Civil War, definitely. I, I'm, I'm resurrecting that period Very as good. part of my projects. What what would you say your favourite period is? I know that's that's like choosing your favourite child. I appreciate, but if a gun was to your head, what would you say was your favourite period? It would probably have to be Napoleonic's because, um, again, it goes back to those early days. Uh, the the year that I got that book, Waterloo came out. I can remember seeing it on the billboards uh, on my way home from school, and just fired my imagination. And I saw the film at the cinema, uh, and it. And of course, Airfix were producing all, well, extending their uh, collection of Airfix uh, Napoleonics at the time. Um, I bought a few, but not many, uh, 28 mil or 25 mil figures. But it stuck with me ever since. Um, but of course, as everybody says, when you're talking about 28 mil and even 15 mil in Napoleonics, it's quite a, a big task to take on. It's a huge period. And that's again where 6 mil comes in. Uh, it, um, it allows you to create some of those epic battles, uh, at which can, we can make look epic without spending a lifetime painting the armies up for, you know. So. Yeah, so, yeah, and I, I was talking about this. I, just a, a, a little bit of a, a peek behind the curtain at God's own scale. I was trying to record a, um, a paint and chat video this afternoon, which completely failed, uh, mainly due to my IT uh, issues. But I was talking about that sort of thing where, um, if you, if you want to collect 5,000 figures to fight the Battle of Waterloo and, and do that in 28 mil from scratch, that's a hell of investment, not only in cash, but in time, isn't it? Because I, I, I don't know what the average time is to paint a 28 mil figure these days uh, to, with inks and, and washes and all this sort of thing. But you've got to be talking 20 minutes to half an hour, I guess. And I can, I can paint probably a, a American Civil War unit in that time. So exactly, um, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's it's a big investment, and I'm 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 not going to go down the rabbit hole of um, criticizing the, those that do. And um, there's a, a guy called Ken Riley, who's the Yorkshire gamer, who's got his uh, new podcast up and running, which is promoting the big game on tables at least 12 foot by six in 28 minutes. <laughs> and, and that's absolutely fantastic, but um, slightly beyond my means, I'm afraid. It's the same with me. I, I, there's no way I could get a, a table of that size in any of the space I've got. And yeah. um, well, I've seen, I mean, Yorkshire Gamers, uh, his figures are fantastic. And Yes, they are, yeah. I, it would take me eons to paint anywhere near as good as that. Um, mm. it's, um, I couldn't even begin to think about it. It's probably <laughs> just, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, it's different strokes for different folks, isn't it? And uh, yeah. we're all part of the same hobby at the end of the day, and I think that's what needs to be understood. There might be the odd occasional gentle ribbing or in, in good humour, but uh, we're yeah, all part of the yeah. same hobby. And uh, it was part of the reason to set up this podcast, actually, that there was such an anti-six mil feeling, or I perceived them to be, and hearing Peter Berry talk about it numerous times when people went up to his stand at shows saying you can't possibly paint anything so small and you can barely see them. Um, it was, it was sort of rail against that really. But on that, on that note then, uh, John, you mentioned what you first became aware of uh, the Bacchus figures and was it some Napoleonics that you, you had from him? 
initially. It was. It, it was because I, uh, when I saw his range, I thought, well, this this is the getting to do Waterloo, um, and uh, so I, I bought some of his figures, painted them up, and I was just thought these are fantastic. In fact, it, when you get them in the raw, I don't think you fully appreciate just how good they are till you paint them. It's they're so easy to paint. And that's what drew me to them, possibly even more than Adler, because Adler are fantastic figures as well. But I just found that backers are just easier to paint. And uh, and you don't have to be a fantastic painter to make them look good. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, that's and that really went from there. It just escalated, I should say, from there, really. Well, just before we came online, I had a quick look at your page on your, your blog to see how many figures you got and it, it's a few isn't it yeah <laughs> i mean bear in mind it's 2009 and i've uh, you know i've not been painting uh continually since then there's been breaks and i think i've got over 25 000 now in total uh now you, you can imagine if you're you're painting 15 mil <laughs> you know, well I, I mean i had a fair sized 15 mil collection but nothing like that uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, of those twenty five thousand, I think probably over half are Napoleonics. So uh. yeah, I, th I think it could, and I don't know how up to date this is, uh, John. But I've got the page in front of me. I think it's something like thirteen thousand uh, Napoleonics across uh, about eight or nine, maybe ten nations. That's right, thirteen thousand seven hundred. Yeah. yeah, it is up to date. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's that's a that's a goodly number. And, and even in six mil would take you some time to paint up if you were starting uh, from scratch now. Was that the initial driver then, uh, seeing those six mil Napoleonics from Bacchus, having that love for Waterloo? It was the initial driver, yes. Yeah, uh, definitely. I, I think the other thing with uh, six mil, uh, with uh, that, with once you start collecting them, is that you don't need thousands to start gaming with them. You can start with just a few hundred. So. Yeah. And it's what I do pretty much for all the periods is just set a target which you can paint within a month or two and get the ball rolling and then keep building and building. Um, it's one of the reasons why I have that Napoleonic campaign running. It's um, it's not really designed to ever end that campaign. It's a means of feeding in figures all the time into the campaign that I'm painting up for other, you know, for other projects like historical scenarios. I can still use those figures in the campaign. So I think anybody starting out in six mil, or even starting out in, in wargaming, and you're going to, if you're going to select six mil, it's just that uh, you might see like my collection, and there's people who've got far more than me, and you're daunted by it. But just collect a few hundred, you can paint up in no time. Before you know it, you've got thousands building. Yeah, because it, it's um, the the painting time, the the investment in painting time, is an absolute. And I mentioned it earlier; it's an absolute fraction of what you would put into the 28 mil figures and i think also with the 28 mil figures there's the tendency to look at the glossy magazines and pictures online of these beautifully painted 28 mil figures and think this is the standard i've got to try and achieve um and mistakes on a 28 mil figure show up quite uh, quite evident aren't they whereas in six mil well if you've if you've splodged splodged a strap on the guy third in from the right you're not going to notice him, are you? That's right. Absolutely. No, that's right. And it does. You can, you can cut corners with six mil as well. I mean, I I tend to be a bit finicky with my Napoleonics, but all the American Civil War figures that I've got, and I've just been picking up some Zulus as well. I've speed painted those, 
Uh, I've not really taken a huge amount of time over them. And en masse, they look fine. Uh, I, I, I tend to have a bit of OCD when it comes to Napoleonics there and some of the others. But uh, the, uh, t Talk us through your painting uh, style then, uh, John, because uh, anybody, and I'll put the link up to the blog in the show notes, if anybody's not visited who's listening to this, they need to go immediately on finishing this podcast and just check out the glorious pictures that you've got on there. What's uh, what's your sort of painting style? For most of them, um, it's uh, it's actually something I've carried over from the 15 mil. really. It's obviously prime and black, which obviously can dull the colours. So what I do is um, things like red and yellows in particular, they will need two coats, at least two. Very rarely, but occasionally it might need a third, but that's very rarely. What I aim to do is uh, block paint, obviously. Um, I don't tend to wash very much. Uh, I will on some, but for most of them, especially in polonics, I just block paint. Once I've got the basic colours on there, the, the colours of the uniforms, I'll then uh, paint in black the straps. Uh, it's additional uh, procedure to go through, but I think it's worth it because what, what I then do is paint the, the strap the white strap, whatever it is, over top of that, so you've got a black line either side of the strap. That black makes the colours really stand out, makes your reds and your blues stand out. Uh, the same with the face. I just dab flesh around the face, uh, leaving all the hair black. And I think the what I tend to do is leave as much black as possible in the shaded areas, which allows those brighter colours to pop. Um, and that's it, really. There's nothing clever about it. I just... Um, that, that's for the most part. I mean, for, for the American Civil War, I did it slightly different. For those, I just uh, used army painter blue and grey, sprayed them, gave them a, a wash of uh, strong tone, army painter strong tone, just painted detail on that flesh and what have you, and just left them at that, and they looked okay. Uh, but I couldn't bring myself to do that with Napoleonics, especially when you look at the amount of detail that Bacchus puts into the figures. It just felt like sacrilege. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> But, yeah, so most of the figures, including World War II, are painted very, pretty much in the same way, black undercoat, um, black lining, but limited, because you'd go mad if you were to do everything. But on the main areas where you're going to have straps or webbing, and there's a bit of a, a you know a, a, a line between that and the main uniform, it just allows features to stand out on the figure. Uh, so when, and when you put it on mass, it looks even better. You know, you, everything just sort of starts to jump out. Uh, but I'm, I'm not uh, an artistic painter. I just developed a, a sort of really basic technique over the years, which I'm, you know, anybody can, can do. And it's keeping it as neat as possible. Like I say, if you do go over a bit, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but uh, I try and keep it reasonably neat. Um, that's it in the most basic terms. Yeah, I, I think neatness at whatever scale is important. I, I talk about maybe splodging one belt or – but. In, in the main, try and keep it neat. Um, and it's the old adage. It, it was Duncan McFarlane that said this to me once at a show many years ago. Um, uh, and for some reason, we got around to talking about uh, painting and how to get better at painting. And his, his adage was, paint a thousand figures. Your thousand and first figure will start to look okay. So it's really just about practice and putting the hours in, isn't it? And, yeah, absolutely, and yeah. Learning those those techniques. And you've certainly learned those techniques, John, because there's some <laughs> beautiful work. And Thanks you very mentioned, much. yeah, not a problem. The, the uh, English Civil War unit, the Blue Coat Regiment that you've 
put up recently is just wonderful. There's quite, there's quite a few figures in that unit, isn't there, I think? It is. It, it will be the largest uh, regiment for Edgehill, the game. Uh, what I've basically done there is um, I've, got, I've decided I'm going to do the play out the, uh, the battle in 1 to 10 ratio. So some of the regiments are quite large. Um, obviously, the, the, da- the data we've got on Edgehill, doesn't, it's hard to find precise uh, manpower levels of each regiment. So I've used the, uh, uh, the forlorn, forlorn help rules mechanism of creating armies. Uh, and it's, uh, I think it's Pete Berry's rules, in fact. Um, and in there, you've got different periods within the English Civil War where you, you, through a die roll, you can determine the pike musket ratio and the size of the unit. So I use that, uh, um, sort of tweaked it a bit to bring it into the sort of area that we know the size of each brigade was. Uh, and so you've got varying sizes of regiments. So obviously, that's quite a large one, that's over 100 figures. I think the smallest I've got is probably about 50 or 60. Um, but, yeah, so that, that's why that, that particular regiment's as big as it is. But I wish I had the time to do them all like that. But uh, I think that, that would be a step too far. Yeah. I don't know if you um, – did you ever see the Edge Hill back in the day using Bacchus where it was nearly a one-to-one figure scale? I no, I didn't see that. No, I bet that would be impressive. <laughs> it was, yeah. It was, it was at the Sheffield show, the old triple show. Um, oh, it must be 20 years ago now. But, uh, yeah, it, it was uh, that was something to see, but uh, not very practical for <laughs> most houses. <laughs> so uh, are you 100% six mil gamer now? I am, yeah. It's... Um... I decided uh, it was a couple of two or three years ago now. I, I, the idea of keeping the original 15 mil was I was going to use those just for skirmishing or small battles within the campaigns. But in the end, I thought, well, this is just ridiculous. It's taking up a lot of space. I'm hardly using them. Six mil by this stage had just taken over everything. So I'm just going to get rid of them, stick with six mil, especially at my stage of life now where, you know, your mortality is coming into view. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm not going to have time to do everything I want to do. So uh, if I just stick to six mil, I'm happy with that. And I have experimented uh, uh, playing out some skirmishes in six mil. And uh, they're okay. You can do it. Uh, I know some people just do skirmishing in six mil and they're quite happy with it. But uh, so it's, it's also the scenery and everything. It's just the storage of everything. It's so much easier with six mil. And I've created a hell of a lot of space getting rid of all that 15 mil stuff. Um, and prior to that, I had 28 mil and 20 mil, which have got cleared out a few years ago. So it's, uh, yeah, six mil all the way now. Yeah, having um, having to collect scenery in just one scale has definitely got its benefits, hasn't it? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, did, I did note, uh, just flicking through your blog earlier, that you'd started a, a 10 mil War of Independence collection. Is, is that still on the go? Yeah, that unfortunately went. All <laughs> oh, right. It was. Yeah, it, 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 I mean, they're fantastic figures, Pendracken. I mean, I, one of the reasons why I hung on to them as long as I did was because the figures are just so good. I couldn't bring myself to sell them. Uh, I, the problem I had again though was just Terran. I thought, well, do I start collecting ten mil Terran for these one period? Um, I did try using some of my six mil uh, buildings. I think I did Concord and Lexington, and it was okay, but it. It didn't really fit very well. I mean, I know some people use smaller scale buildings 
you know, uh, and it allows them to create a larger settlement, and it's just in the background, really. But um, I wasn't too happy about it. I thought, well, no, I'm going to have to start collecting 10 mil scenery if I'm going to continue with this. And in the end, I thought, no, I will have to go. Um, it's just um, otherwise, just going to sit there and probably never get used. But it was a it was a tough one to sell those. Because if anybody's not familiar with Pendragon figures, especially American War of Independence, they are absolutely magnificent. They really are. It's, uh, they are uh, wonderful sculpts, aren't they? And it's probably, I think, if I was, and I'm in the same boat as you, John. I, I'm probably not quite as far along the road as you are at the moment, but I'm, I'm coming to the realization that there's only so much time, um, not only in the day, but in your life, <laughs> uh, to get, uh, get projects done. And I've only, I've got a finite amount of storage space and exactly. Yeah. And I, if anything, then if, if ever I was going to do a skirmish game, I suppose I, I could look towards the Pendragon, uh, AWI range if I was going to do something like sharp practice but um, I've I've just started my own 6 mil AWI collection for Guildford Courthouse so oh, right, yeah. um, the Bacchus AWI are lovely, I haven't looked at the Adler because I know they do some AWI yeah. but uh, the Bacchus AWI are gorgeous and I, um, I'm, I'm resigning myself along your uh, uh, train of thought to be honest that uh, i can anything that i want to game i can do in six mil absolutely yeah you're going to turn me into american war dependence now with Bacchus, so i keep putting it <laughs> off because <laughs> it's another period it, it is another period but uh if, if you've got plenty it seems like you've got plenty of american terrain for the american civil i do yeah and, and that's yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> I'm a helping, John. I'm helping. <laughs> of course, we're limited to £50 purchases at the moment from Bacchus. Yes, we are. For... Yeah, so uh, there's no big splurges uh, uh, available at the moment. But uh, Yeah, so uh, I'm looking forward to that. I'm, I'm just coming to the end of my own Americans of War project for Antietam. Uh, so... Uh, just as a sort of a palette cleanser in between painting other units, then uh, I've painted up one or two. I've got I've got enough um, figures for the Continental Army at Guildford Courthouse, so I'm just just plug, plugging away on on those as I go along. But, you, you 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 painted those pretty quickly, didn't you? I, I, it certainly faster than I could do, I think. But uh, well, again, it's that three foot rule, and it's uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think I'm probably less. Fussy, not fussy. That's the wrong word. <laughs> I'm less precise. There you go. I'm less precise. That's a better word for it. But um, just on that topic, then, because my Civil War collection and my AWI collection um, are on what has almost become an industry standard of a unit base. So it's one base per unit. Um, I don't know why that's become sort of an industry standard, but whenever in the main whenever we see six mil figures shown off then they tend to be on these larger 60 by 30 or the 60 by 60 bases sort of the volume volume bayonet or, or um, those sort of rules but you you're not you haven't gone down that route have you john no well i did originally when when um when I started collecting them in 2009 in fact for about two or three years i went down the 60 by 30 route uh because I can understand the reasoning behind it, you know, it, um, you know, for ease of movement to protect the figures, um, 
but to, to, so you can have a pretty quick game in an evening. Um, I got Polymus rules. I tried Sam Mustafa's uh, Grand Army, uh, which I, I settled on the Grand Army rules in the end. And I was going to do Waterloo using those rules and those base sizes. Um, but uh, I think it's after three or four years of collecting, I must have painted up about three or 4,000 at this stage. And uh, I've had a campaign going with one of my sons um, uh, using the War Plan 5-5 system that I've been using for the Napoleonic campaign. And uh, had some good battles, but again, I found that there was something for me was missing. Uh, I tried to adapt the rules to allow for formation changes, lots of casualties, all this sort of stuff, but it just wasn't working out. And I thought, just out of an experiment, I, um, my American Civil War that I just started collecting, I thought, I'll try playing Fire and Fury with these, but on smaller bases. Uh, obviously, you've got uh, Fire and Fury, it's one-inch bases. Uh, so I thought, well, that's 15 mil. I'll do 15 mil. Uh, that's, sorry, 25 mil for 15 mil figures. I'll go for 15 mil for 6 mil and put six figures on a base. I, I, I considered eight, so you've got a strip of four. But I thought, well, going to six just allows that much more flexibility in your unit sizes and formations. Uh, so I tried it for American Civil War, and it worked. I thought, well, this is working for Fire and Fury. Why don't I do this for, you know, uh, Napoleonic? And I'll go back to my favorite set of rules, which is General the Brigade. And I tried it, realized it's doable. And then I thought, God, I've got to do a lot of rebasing now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I, I thought I bit the bullet, and it took me. I, I rebased those figures over a period of a year. In I was doing it in tandem with painting because I thought if I do it in one one hit, it will drive me nuts. But I did it or rebased it, and I've never really looked back. I thought this is it for me. I uh, this is much more in tune with how the enjoyment I get out of you know my hobby. Uh, it's but obviously the downside is the games I play. Uh, are a lot longer to play through. It's not most of them are not the sort of games that you can play in an evening. You know, I accept that. Uh, and also, if you've got if you've got people handling your figures, you know, they're taking part and they're borrowing your figures. There's no you can't get away from the fact that the figures have been handled a lot more than on a large base. Uh, I've never had any breakages myself. Uh, I've never had any problems. But of course, that's me looking after my own figures. You can imagine if somebody else was grabbing them and was mishandle them you could end up with a few problems so there are downsides to it but uh, it's one of the aims of the blog is to demonstrate to people you don't have to go down the large base route every time if you don't want to there are alternatives out there if you prefer like me a slightly more old-fashioned style of wargaming where you've got its casualties are recorded rather than an entire base representing an entire battalion or even a brigade in some cases gets removed in one big block uh, it just didn't chime with my, you know, what I enjoy, basically. Uh, so um, hopefully the blog sort of gets some of that across of that alternative way of doing it. Uh, so if, for instance, you're moving from 15 mil and you've really enjoyed General the Brigade, uh, you can you can continue with that. You could probably still do it with a larger basis. You could probably still, you know, work around it somehow. But going to those smaller bases, I can, you know, I can have a column marching down the road you know, and it looks like a column in March order. And the other really big thing for me was when you've got, when you pack in a board full of terrain, the smaller bases sit inside the terrain rather than on top of it. You know, I found that with those larger bases, you, 
you could have quite an attractive looking board, but you've got these big you know, blocks of figures on bases sat, sat on terrain. Could be even on top of buildings to show that they're inside a settlement. Um, and again, it's a personal thing. I appreciate that you know other people will have a problem with it, but for me, I just enjoy the spectacle and the atmosphere you can build upon the tabletop by having your terrain, your troops inside the terrain, doing what they're doing. You know, it just. Uh, it, uh, I think an example is if you look at um, Mal Wright on the Facebook code, General um, Blitzkrieg Commando Group. Mal Wright occasionally posts his World War Two games on there, and his terrain is his, his tabletops are jam packed full of terrain, and his figures are, are almost lost in the terrain, but it looks absolutely fantastic. Uh, and so, hence, that's that's one of the reasons why I go for smaller smaller bases. Yeah, I, you're absolutely spot on. That with the those sixty by thirties, they can sometimes be balancing on a fence, can't they? And and looking all very awkward in in the in the placement of it. The pictures that you've posted over the years do remind me of my wargaming past. Looking at the uh, your choice of rules, the general, the brigade. What was it about those rules? I know that you said you played them in 15 mil previously but what what is it specifically about that set of rules i think it again it goes back to those days of the the slightly old-fashioned and the way they laid out um the sequence of events that you go through I mean, it's what turns a lot of people off it, i have to say but the sequence of events are you go through your, your different phases checking charts you have to check to uh, charge you have to check to complete the charge but for me the way it pans out in the round makes for a more fulfilling game. It's the you lose casualties, individual casualties in case instead of entire blocks of figures, you know, entire base. The overall gaming experience you get through uh, the um, the brigade when it attacks, the columns breaking down as they go in, and you can actually see units disintegrate gradually sometimes or failing their charge. Entire formations get. So, as has happened in my latest game, are getting jumbled up uh, as their formations break down under fire. It's that detail that provides a lot of the uh, atmosphere, I think, in the game, which you miss on some of the more basic rules. You know, if you throw in, for example, if you get a, um, like Grand Army, for example, uh, you get an attack go in. Obviously, on your, your one base, you'll throw one dice, the other person throw a dice, and that may well represent everything from firing melee morale in one role and determines the outcome of that action to me it misses a lot of the, the a lot of the atmosphere gets missed uh, the way i liken it too is if for instance when you read these books like simon scarrow or uh, bernard cornwell and they're describing the scene of a battle and you get uh, you know the drama all around those individuals fighting that battle rules like general brigade actually reproduce to a certain extent, that when it comes to those, that minutiae of the combat, uh, it does mean it's more detailed, there's more die rolling, there's more chart checking to be done. Although you, you do speed up, you should get more familiar with the different requirements. Uh, but as you, as you see reading my blog, I tend to cover some of that in there where individual units or... Uh, Sometimes even characters, commanders, find themselves in sticky situations. Uh, and it plays out over a se- sometimes even several turns rather than just one die roll. I think an example I can give is, uh, I, can't, I think it was a battle of um, 
Grisberg, not Grisberg, it was one of the earlier battles of the, with the Prussians. It's a large battle. And right out on the French right flank was a single line battalion uh, occupying a wood. And it was just there to keep an eye on what was going on opposite them and to um, hold the flank as best it could. Right, It was an outlier right out on the flank. The Prussians sent in a, uh, an entire regiment or three, three battalions. I think it was Landwehr originally with the aim of just simply rolling back, rolling over this single battalion. And that was um, obviously turning the flank. That battalion, that one battalion lasted the entire game fighting off that brigade. It fought off uh, regular units, uh, an artillery battery. Uh, it was heroic. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, wow. uh, by the time, by the time, the, by the time the game ends, it was down to almost fifty percent casualties, which is a disposal point. Now that would never have happened, and any other rules that I can think of, not the modern rules, rules, it would have gone long before that. It was a sequence of just simply high die rolls, really. But you got it captured the drama, uh, you know, of units going in, desperate fights taking place, from firefights to malaise. The, the, the battalion itself desperately trying to reform, ready for the next attack. Uh, and it's, it was almost like a, a mini action on the periphery of a much larger battle. Uh, there is numerous examples, and you'll see it through my blog, where individual units, sometimes brigades, find themselves in those sort of situations. And it, a, a drama can play out through several turns rather than just one die roll. And it's, again, it goes back to some of those old games I used to play back in the 70s. A lot of it's down to casualties recording, and you'll see units gradually diminish in size and fighting ability. And it's visual as well. It's not just, you know, a, a, a counter recording a strength point, you know, next to a, a, a block of a unit. But uh, I think that's, it's not, I don't explain that very well, but hopefully it gives you a flavour of why that sort of rule appeals no I, I think you explained it incredibly well and i guess grand armee if it was a bernard bernard cornwell book would be a couple of sentences whereas general de brigade would be three or four pages <laughs> describing the action yeah that's a, a good, well a good way of putting it yeah and uh yeah exactly that mm. and uh, i hate to say but um I, you, you're making my uh brain tick over here about possibilities <laughs> about what uh, how, how i could do something similar but i'm not rebasing all of these war figures. <laughs> i think uh, i think uh, general de brigade was sort of the natural progression on from the likes of in the grand manor weren't they with these yes, they were. units and this and gaming in the grand manor as the the old rules used to say so it's it's not a game i played but i've been well aware of and certainly dave brown's other works as well so the base sizes then that you use for six mil uh what 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 do you use for them is it 15 mil frontages or something different i've come across pretty much standard now it fits in with backers frontages it's 15 mil frontage for infantry and artillery um and obviously, the, it's 15 by 15 for infantry, so you get six figures on a base. Um, the artillery is just obviously just one cannon and four crew, um, and it's 15 by 20 mil depth to accommodate the crew. Cavalry is slightly different. I have 20 mil with, uh, with three cavalry to a base. Again, it fits in with that 
60 mil by 30, you've got nine, the backers figures, you've got nine cavalry figures on a 60 mil frontage. I'll just simply reduce that to 23 figures, uh, again, on a 15 mil depth. And I've kept it pretty much the same as that through all my periods because uh, it's worked. I just find it works well. It allows the flexibility uh, to change the different um, you know, formations as well as, as you'll see on my blog, I don't like generic unit sizes very much. I don't think it's a very accurate representation of, of you know, uh, armies of the time. Uh, they'd be all over the place, some of these army sizes, you know, battalion sizes. So you'll see on mine, I've got all sorts of different sizes. And again, if you've got something of that size of uh, base, it just gives you that bit more flexibility with, you know, whatever size you want your battalion to be. So, uh, so with the, is it all Bacchus figures then, your Napoleonic collection? I've got a sprinkling of Adler in there and uh, some rapier in uh, uh, my uh, ancients. I've got some rapier, I think, um, early Imperial Roman and uh, barbarian uh, ancient Britons, you know, Celts. Uh, but uh, the Adler figures I've used are mainly command figures in Napoleonics. Uh, I did collect some for American Civil War, um, which I've still got, only a small number. Um, but that was really just a test to see if I prefer those to Bacchus. They are excellent figures. Um, I know that some people don't like their large heads. I didn't find that too much of a problem, but I think the deciding factor to me was Bacchus just was quicker for me to paint and easy, easier to paint in some ways as well. Yes, yeah. Um, so with the Bacchus figures, do you because there are four figures on a 20 mil strip, aren't they? So do you clip a figure off to... I do, and uh, and on the English of War figures I just completed, I've had to do a lot of snipping because I've into, I've mixed and matched the headgear on some of the musketeers just to give them a more irregular look. Um, but yeah, I mean it's, it does involve an extra um, procedure to go through when basing, but it's not a major problem really. No, no, it, it absolutely isn't. It's something I've uh, I've learned over the last twelve months or so that uh, clipping up bases isn't an issue. Um, and you're right. I think the the Bacchus figure. I I do really like the Adler figures, and I've I've got some in my American Civil War, and in particular the command figures again, the personality yeah. generals. Um, but the the sort of the pose that the Bacchus figures comes in just lends itself to batch painting. I think doesn't it, and speed painting. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah so definitely. You're, you're not yeah. messing about with individual, uh, individual uh, sculpts, and also actually putting the figures onto the base is a lot quicker, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what what other rules are you using other than General de Brigade? Where where are you with your ancients at the moment? Well, ancients, uh, that had been a real head structure. I've spent years trying to find a set of rules I've been happy with, and I've got oh, massive on me. One of my bookcases at the moment. It's uh, and I've never really been happy totally with any of them. So I've uh, I've, been, <laughs> I've been playing around with doing my own version of General de Brigade, fully enough. I thought, well, what the hell, I'll use General de Brigade's skeleton as a starting point. But obviously, it's going to have to be significantly different to General de Brigade when it comes to shooting, melee, morale, and obviously the training is different, and uh, the, weapons, the weapons they use are totally different. So it, it's had I've had to do quite a, a lot of work to get them to what I think would be a reasonable representation of an ancient battle. And it's still a lot of work to be done, but I've started using them now. I used them on my um, last, uh, well, I've got a 
campaign running at the moment uh, for the early imperial Roman period, which is the uh, invasion of Britain, and it's taken from the Hail Caesar scenario campaign book. Uh, Britannia, I think it's called. <clears throat> uh, so I tried them out really for the first time properly for that first game, and it threw up a few problems, but it seemed to be working quite well. My first cut of these rules about two or three years ago, I had reams and reams of quick reference sheets. It was ridiculous. So I was trying to call for it, every single weapon going. Uh, but I've, I've fallen back on the uh, War and Conquest, uh, well, Hail Caesar style of where there's static stats, like, for example, a the training, uh, the, arm, the arm and weapons the uh, person is carrying, are pretty static, so they'll be awarded a, you know, a factor for melee, for shooting factor, and so on, and an armor value for whatever armor they've got. And it's only the variables that are in the quick reference charts. So, you know, the distance shot and so on, and obviously a die roll. And so far, it's, it's working out okay. But uh, it's not something I'd ever go public with because it's just purely for my use, and uh, I'll probably... Treading all over all sorts of copyright rules. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I'm also using I'm using a lot of ideas pulled from different rules as well. But ancient, so a lot of peers like obviously Napoleonic, um, World War Two, I'm pretty much settled on uh, Blitzkrieg Commander at the moment. But with ancients, I really am struggling to find a set of rules that I'm happy with. I just there's some each set of rules have all got some excellent ideas, but just for me, there's something missing on each one. You know, it's a uh, I suppose it goes back to those old days again. It's back to, I used to really enjoy WRG 6th edition. I took a look at those, and you, when you do look back on them, you really realise how archaic they are really compared to what's around now. Um, it's things like, I mean, it's recording when, I mean, those old rules, you you, you record, um, it's 1 to 20 ratio, don't you? And you, you have to record the number of men killed in a unit. And when you get up to 20, you remove a figure. Uh, in six, we can imagine in six mil. It's, um, it's, I, I looked, I thought, no, I just think that's a step too far. So, um, yeah, but other rules, um, I'm using Forlorn Hope for, uh, English Civil War. Because that, that's, a, that's a set that's, um, quite an old fashioned set, isn't it? But still stands the test of time. There's many, uh, supporters for Forlorn Hope. Absolutely. I, th- I think, um, it, what pricked my ears up was when uh, it was described, I think, in a review as old-fashioned. As soon as it said that, I thought, I've got to have a look at these. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. I mean, I've got, uh, I've got 1644, I think, Michelle's. Uh, that's a foundry one, I think. And uh, the uh, Warhammer version, which uh, I never tried out, I think they, they got slated, didn't they? And uh, DBR, yeah, yeah DBR. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I've got them. I think my only criticism at the moment, I've only played them once, so I've got to really get my head around them properly, but my only criticism is that um, when you go to Malay, the casualties are very light, which is probably historically accurate. It's most, when you read about these battles, the main casualties really were caused afterwards in the pursuits and the rout and all the rest of it. The only thing from a war game perspective, it's not very satisfying when you've had this big scrap and you lose a couple of figures. And I, <laughs> you know, you've got to lose some men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I'm gonna when I've got more familiar with the rules, I might have a tweak if I don't break them. But have a tweak on that, see if I can make it a bit more fun on the casualty level without actually breaking anything else. 
But other than that, they do seem to work quite well. It is, again, it is more general the brigade type of gaming, um, which, uh, again, appeals to me. Um, what else? I mean, and again, coming on to the Americans of War, I'm using um, Guns at Gettysburg, which is in the family of General the Brigade. Yes, yeah, I've got a friend who uses them and speaks very highly yeah. of them. And it's just personal choice. I mean, I'm personally, it, that style where you get casualties, you get uh, formations breaking down in front of your eyes, it adds a bit of drama there, which I like. And it, it, they tell a story, don't they? And you, you talked about that French battalion in the wood attacked by all those Prussians. It'd yeah, be difficult yeah. to tell that same story, as you said, with one dice roll deciding the whole combat. Um, and typically, the, the time period that those sort of rules cover will be an hour per turn, something like that, won't it? Won't, won't it? Whereas it's a much more granular game you're talking about, with the likes of General Dubgade and Guns uh, at Gettysburg. If you look at the, the Pauline Island campaign I've got at the moment, um, again, this probably wouldn't have happened under any of the, or under a lot of the rules anyway. There's a, a chap called Colonel Best who's in command of a uh, Hanoverian uh, Landwehr um, brigade. So very conscripts, basically. And he's been action virtually from the start of the campaign and is still alive and his men are still fighting. And it's, it's nothing, it's nothing deliberate. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't cheat with the die rolls. It's just that his plucky little band of conscripts have performed miracles. And I've gradually, as the campaign's gone on, I have upgraded them from conscripts. I thought you've got to recognize the fact that these are getting experienced now. They know what they're doing. And wherever, where he's found himself, he's managed to, a bit like a, a Bernard Cornwell character, he's managed to get out of some very sticky situations. And I, I, now, if that had been Grand Army, I just could not see how that could have happened, really. I mean, he would have gone. He had the survivor gone. There would not have been any of that drama uh, around his units actually fighting any of those battles and how they actually performed. Um, so it tells a story, which is what, um, you know, what uh, I think inspires me i suppose you want you want that immersion don't you in 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 something that's a little bit more than toy soldiers i suppose or just a a one-off meaningless uh scrap um and i know you 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 refight historical battles as well as these campaigns but you want if you're refighting something that's not historical as in the campaign you want to have these memories created don't you to because we put a lot of time into this hobby, don't we? We spend generally spend far more time painting and preparing than we do actually playing. Although that might not be true in your case, John. I don't know. You play you play quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's not too bad at the moment, but uh, it's one of the advantages of solo gaming, which let's come on in a bit. To, uh, I can I can spend half an hour painting, and then I'll think right. Well, I'll, I'll do a move on the table. Uh, I'll just do a move and so on. So I can mix and match, but uh, so. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's uh, uh, with the campaigns. Um, I tend to find when I do play out the scenarios, the historical scenarios, it, it's good and I enjoy them, and it's nice to sort of read up about a battle and recreate it. But I tend to find at the end of it, I'm thinking, if only this had been a campaign battle. Those units, you know, you when you're in a campaign, you've got to take into account what comes next, and so you've got to husband your resources. You can't just go hell for leather. Uh, and uh, you also get attached to various characters in the in that that survive various battles and keep cropping up and back later on battles later on. Uh, but uh, yeah, so campaigns and it's really the last few years that uh, I've taken into playing 
campaigns that I have, certainly in this, this sort of length. Uh, and it's, uh, I recommend it to people if you haven't tried it. I, I'm going to give you some advice. Retire Colonel Best now before he dies. Otherwise, you'll be devastated. <laughs> At the moment, he's, he's, he's behind enemy lines trying to find his way back to, as you'll see the map if you look on there, he's just escaped uh, a, an annihilation of a Dutch-Belgian uh, division by uh, the first French First Corps. He's making his way up the map. <laughs> he's making his way, him and his brigade, that's all there is. Uh, he's making his way up the map. He's got to try and get back to an Anglo-Dutch force right at the top of the map. We're assembling, trying to defeat um, the French army in that, that part of the, the campaign. So he's now got this task. He's got to get back there without being found out. <laughs> That's incredible. What a great story. <laughs> I can't wait to see how that plays out, John. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's... Uh, I'm not... And I'm, although he's, he's obviously featuring quite heavily now, I'm determined I'm not going to do him any favours. So if he does get discovered, he's got to find his way out. If he dies, like Bernard Cornwell, but if he dies, it'd be sad, but that's part of the story, really. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to root for him from now on, John. Um, talk, talk to me about your campaigns then, because um, they're fascinating to read. Um, how, What's how do you go out go about organising them and playing them through and managing a campaign? Right, the um, it does tend to vary depending on the campaign. Obviously, I mean the Napoleonic one. Um, you know, I think you, you hear people say quite often, "Look, don't have too complicated a campaign because you'll never complete it. Just keep it simple. I don't know, maybe twelve turns or whatever, and uh, at least you'll complete the campaign." I tend to come from a slightly different angle. Um, the angle I come from is the campaign is there to generate battles and a story, give you a story of what's happening. That Napoleonic campaign, I mean, it's slight, a bit of an outlier because this is really huge and it's designed to possibly outlive me. You know, it's just, I want it to be one of those never-ending series. <laughs> uh, but it's a vehicle for creating battles on the tabletop and creating characters like Colonel Best. So for that one, the campaign itself is, and again, it, it falls back on campaigns I used to have back in the 70s. There's nothing too complicated about it. It's, um, you start off with obviously the, the orders of battle, the starting, uh, the starting, uh, positions and the orders of battle that, that they begin with. For the battle itself, those rules I've used have been taken from a very old, it's a war called War Plan 5-5 system. It came out in the 70s. Um, it's basically a, a, a series of maps which you can put together to form a bigger map. And each square is described in a book, in like a, a, a book that describes each square and what's in it. There are rules that come with it. Now, I've just slimmed the whole thing down to infantry moves so many squares, cavalry so many, artillery so many, and so on. Uh, and you obviously you, you move into contact, you set up your board, you play out the battle, and then your casualties, depending on win, win or lose a, a game, will determine how many casualties you get back at the end of the day. And then obviously, uh, I won't go into great detail, but from there, uh, you know, an army may route and continue routing away from a, a victorious army if it's been heavily defeated, uh, and you know, you just carry on moving and fighting battles as and when. I didn't bother with weather rules. I deliberately left them out because I thought well, it was just going to complicate it. I, I wanted to keep it as simple as possible. Um, 
I included things like uh, each square has a value. So, for instance, a, um, I don't know, a rural square, there was nothing in it, would have a very middle value, whereas a town with industrial heart base in it will be of much higher value. And those values accumulate at the end of each campaign month. And from that, you get your reinforcements. So it's in the interest of armies, various nations, not to lose too much territory. Uh, but I've not made it so that you lose so much that you've got no chance of winning if you lose, for instance, your country, which is what's happened to the Hanoverians. They've lost their country. There's no way they're going to get reinforcements now unless they regain any of that. That's the basics of it. Um, and I said, on the blog, you'll see more detail about some of those rules. But again, it's nothing too complicated. I've not, um, the, the main consequences of each campaign is really is casualties. And at the end of each uh, game, I will review how units have performed. If units, some individual units performed exceptionally well, they'll get upgraded, say from line to veteran. Um, I don't necessarily downgrade them unless they've had a batch of new recruits, conscripts have arrived, and the unit's made up primarily conscripts, then they'll get downgraded. But most of the time, they'll get upgraded. So units, as they progress with the campaign, will get better at fighting. Um, also, within the rules, um, flags can get captured. So if any flags get captured, the, the unit that loses the flag will have um, a demoralizing uh, negative multiplier on their next game. Obviously, the unit that gains the flag, well, the reverse will happen. They will get a plus uh, in the next game because they will be cock a hoop that have captured somebody's flag. So little things that things like that I put in there just add a bit of flavour to the uh, the campaign. Uh, but uh, but yeah, that's that's the big campaign. Obviously, the, I've started American Civil War, which is a much smaller version of that, but very similar. Uh, there is a is that using the five by five uh, system as well? That one is yeah. I did try with the idea of doing something like the Shenandoah Valley. Um, I, I sort of looked at a few options for the American Civil War, but I settled that on the end, uh, but on a much smaller scale. And I anticipate that will be finished you know, fairly quickly, I would think. Well, certainly within a few years anyway. Before you shuffle off the mortal coil. Before I die. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I've got, tell you, what are the campaigns? The, the Britannia campaign is, uh, that pretty much is a direct lift from the, uh, the campaign's book from Harold Caesar. Uh, I, I've added a few tweaks in there, and I may add a few more yet to make it give it a bit more flavour. Uh, but it's very much a determining whether the tribe becomes an ally of Rome or not, or whether it's going to oppose it. And obviously, the the legions, the four legions that have landed, have got to make their way across England and Wales, and eventually subdue the entire territory. Um, uh, so uh, you'll see from that the the way of um, I'm going to be recording casualties is similar. Um, but uh, um, the tribes that oppose them will have various, uh, uh, so there'll be various sizes and quality. Uh, but um, but yeah, that's on there. And I think World War II, I've got a couple going. One's a mini campaign, uh, which is taken from uh, Charles Grant's uh, book program scenarios. Uh, it's got a, a mini campaign in there, reconnaissance strength, which is going to be a Russian front one. That again, will be a mini campaign. Um, um, what else have I got? Oh, yes, North Africa. Um, uh, that's a campaign, Operation Compass, which I started fairly recently. I think that's it as far as campaigns go. Um, I'm not intending starting any more just yet. 
<laughs> I've got enough to be going on. Yeah, you've you've certainly got your hands full there, haven't you? Have you ever seen a mention of um, uh, a king kingmaker? Kingmaker, uh, yeah, that's one I've got going with my son. Um, it's a bit slow at the moment because we it's a, it's um, it's when he's available, I'm avail- I'm available. He's got a job at the moment. He uh, he wait it works um, pretty long hours, so it's sort of tied in with him when he's a, he's free. It, Kingmaker, it's um, I've had that since the seventies, and it's been it's quite a good vehicle for campaigns, um, especially capturing that flavour of the time. Um, so that that's that that uses the Kingmaker rules for most of the actions and sieges, apart from the battles itself. The battles are then played out. The pitch battles that is are played out on uh, on the tabletop. And at the moment, I've Using my rules again, my variation of General de Brigade. So, so that is um, a campaign with a live opponent. But of course, the blog is the solo wargaming blog. So, <laughs> uh, talk to me about that then. What what brought you to solo wargaming as opposed to club and competition gaming, and what what do you find the advantages are? Right. Well, I, I think for me. Um, Right from the beginning, from when I was a kid, I probably spent half my time solo wargaming. I was quite, I was just as happy playing uh, myself as I was with my friends. So it's sort of really continued with me throughout my life, and I've never thought anything about it. It's just something I do. Um, so things like, for instance, uh, artificial opponents, um, artificial uh, intelligence, rather, artificial intelligence opponents, I don't really get too get hung up on that. I'm not worried. I play both sides because um, it's still... The drama still plays out. You know, it's the die rolls that add the variety. And they, you, can't, you can't predict what's going to happen. Uh, even though so, people say, oh, yeah, but you know what the other side's going to do. And to a, certain, to a certain extent, that is true until contact is established. And then it all falls apart. Anything can happen. Uh, so, but the advantage of solo, um, the, the main advantage is that, like I do now, especially if you've got a permanent war games room, you can go in there anytime you want, if it's just half an hour, an hour to a move or even half a move, and you can do it whenever you like. You can, you can, uh, sometimes I might leave it for a couple of days, go back, and you're keeping the game fresh. And that's, that, that's particularly important if I'm doing a blog because you can't, you've got to keep stopping to photograph and record what's happened if you're going to relate, you know, the, uh, the story of the battle. So to do that in one hit, in, in an evening, uh, it would be very tiring and it would very quickly um, become a chore. So solo gaming has that advantage where you can come and go and just play the game out whenever you like. You've also got the advantage that, uh, as I do, I can switch between periods and campaigns, scenarios, whenever I like. I'm not committed to a time scale. I don't have an opponent I have to worry about who we might be. We might, for instance, have a campaign that, you know, he wants to continually play, you know, and quite naturally wants to see the game through, the campaign through. And it, it, I, I can, you know, there are times, like the Napoleonic one, for example, I played, when I started it for about six months, I did nothing but the Napoleonic campaign. At the end of that six months, I was getting pretty cheesed off with it. I thought, I need a break from this. I, I, you know, it was no problem me then switching to something else and keeping that fresh. So when I went back to the Napoleonic campaign, it was fresh again. So you keep everything fresh. You've got that flexibility. You've got the freedom to pick whatever army you want. Uh, there's a downside. You have to paint both sides, obviously. 
Um, the other aspect for me, and it may strike a chord with some people, especially when they get to my age, is that, as I mentioned to you earlier, I've got hearing problems, which only came on over the past 10 years. Um, it's got to the stage now where I've got these super Gucci hearing aids, but fine when I'm talking on one-on-one, but if you get any background noise, like, for instance, in a club or a show, it, it completely destroys any conversation. You can't hear people. So you can imagine, and it's very, I can, my mother was, was deaf and I, and I'd know what it's like when you're talking to a, somebody who has hearing problems, how frustrating it can be. It can be very embarrassing for the person who is deaf as well. So in a club setting or on a show, it's just not worth the effort, quite frankly. It's, it's, it becomes very hard and it's embarrassing, obviously, and hard work for the person that you're gaming with if they can't be heard. It's not about one-to-one, obviously, but um, so I think if you are like me, you're struggling with the hearing and you are in a position where you think, well, I can't really continue with the club scene anymore, you do have an alternative. And it's still very enjoyable. It keeps the hobby fresh. Um, you do lose the um, the social aspect, obviously, uh, but uh, it, the, get, the hobby itself is still live uh, and you can derive a great deal of enjoyment out of playing solo. Like I said with the Napoleonic campaign, you got you almost got a, a, a series of novels being played out, which you're involved in on the tabletop, uh, and that's how I look at it. You know, so yeah, that's that's that, that basically is the advantage of solo. Um, but yeah, there are shortcomings. It's not for everybody. If you're worried about having an artificial intelligence opponent, you can do that. There are the, the program war game scenarios, which are back in print again, gives you some alternatives there. I've tried it that sort of gaming, but I've never had any problems playing both sides. I've never really taken to it. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm with you. I've, I'm not a massive solo gamer, but I certainly have during this period of lockdown played uh, some games solo. And I've, I've certainly got no problem in, in moving from one side of the table to the other uh, and just um, reacting to the challenge that's in front of me. So I play one side out, go around to the other side and look and think, well, what would I do now or what would the commanders do in this situation? So, um, And lockdown, I think, has probably brought more people to solo wargaming than, than ever, uh, to be honest. Um, I think in the past it's perhaps been looked down on or people have sniffed at it a little bit, but um, it's just another factor of the hobby, isn't it? It is. I, I, I saw a, a debate on Facebook um last year sometime and it was running along the lines of look you know i want to get into solo wargaming but um i think the questioner actually said i want to do solo wargaming but i can't get my head around how i'm going to play the opponent and i think somebody commented on there and put it perfectly when he said use your imagination and that's what it is really uh you you so it is literally that you um you're putting yourself into the head of those commanders uh, you're visualising what's going on on that tabletop, and then when action starts, then a bit like when you read those Bernard Cornwell books, you're seeing it being played out in front of your eyes. And you don't know what the dice is going to come up with. Your favourite unit might get destroyed. It might have a horrendous die roll. And um, as we'll be seeing with this battle I'm playing out at the moment, uh, Winnie Yates Rocket Battery uh, <laughs> adds some mixed blessings, to put it mildly. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 that will be going up on the blog over the next few days. You'll see what happened to him. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's, um, 
but yeah, you, it's just using your imagination. And, and uh, if you do that, you'll see the advantages of solo game. And it's not, it is viewing the game slightly differently to when you've got an opponent. When you've got an opponent, you, you know, you've got the fun of and the excitement of trying to beat your opponent. And, um, and, uh, and you're not thinking too much or as much about the individual characters on the tabletop because they're just pieces to use, really, I suppose. I'm not, you know, it's not no way criticising that. It's just that that's just, you know, the way that they uh, play with the opponent quite often works and that you start matters about the fun with it. And I do miss the aspect of it. But uh, but there is a lot to solo wargaming that I think people don't think about until they've tried it and really got into doing it properly. And uh, it's, you can still have just as much enjoyment once you um, give it a go. Yeah, and you, you talk about the social aspects and there is an element to that, I suppose. But... Um, I think you've sort of got the next best thing, which is through your blog um, that we started off talking about and the amount of engagement that you get through from people that visit your blog and make comments on it and uh, congratulate you on, on your figures and, and an interesting read of a, a game. So what was it that first twisted your arm into creating the blog? Well, I think... Um... <clears throat> The blog itself, I, I, mean, I had it running in the background for several years. I just used a diary, and I thought one day, it's about three, three, four years ago, I thought I, I, I might just give it a go, uh, just put some games up on the blog that I've done before, um, and I thought uh, just to see what it's like, you know, see if anybody's interested. I didn't anticipate anybody being interested, really. I thought I'd just do it because I, we're going back again, going back to the seventies. Occasionally, I do write-ups of battles. Um, just purely out of personal interest. Uh, again, coming back to the creating a story behind the game itself so that I could relate back to it in years ahead. I could go look back on that and see what I did. So it was a means of just recording some of the action on the tabletop. I thought I'd just give it a go. And uh, it really just built from there. It's got to the stage now where I'm thinking, well, well, well sorry, I should have said. Another aspect of this well, as well was, which you touched on earlier, was I wanted to showcase six mil for the same reasons you said, which was that I was too was getting a bit fed up with hearing people saying that six mil was too small to paint. Because uh, I, you know, I, I use an Optivisor to paint my figures. I couldn't otherwise I'd struggle. But I use an Optivisor to paint twenty eight mil figures. So the other thing, the other uh, slight irritation was uh, I couldn't see any at that time or very little six mil being put into magazines. On the basis that on the basis that it was not you couldn't photograph it, it wasn't as attractive as twenty mil when you photographed them. And I thought, well, I don't know, I, I'm not you know I'm not a professional photographer by a long shot, but I thought, but six mil you can can look stunning, you know you can make them look good, you can make the, those big set pieces. Uh, and I thought even with my limited ability, photographing ability, I can make them look you know hopefully quite quite good on the tabletop. And that was a motivator. So it was to sell six mil and to win people over to six mil and the advantages of it. Uh, but again, I didn't really, in the early days, I thought, well, I'll just do it. I'll see what happens. Uh, I didn't even give any thought to the name in the blog. I should have called it something after Wargaming, something more appropriate to Wargaming. I just kept Grime out because that, 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 that was the username I'd used in eBay and goodness knows what else. Uh, so... Uh, and it really just built up a head of steam from there. And it is, it does take up a lot of time. But I find that doing it though, uh, it does draw you even more into the game you're playing. 
you have to think about how you're going to re record it on the blog, what's actually happening on the tabletop. So it, it draws you into the game even more. Uh, it you know brings it alive, the game alive. Things like Colonel Best, for example, you've it was actually somebody picked up on the blog that said, "Can't blame you, Colonel Best is having a a, a campaign and a half." And I'd only hardly given it half thought at that stage. I thought, "Yeah, yeah, certainly." <laughs> Uh, so, and that's really the reasoning behind the blog, why I do it. Um, there were times, I think you probably saw last year, I, I went into Overload. I was doing, uh, I think it was uh, World War II, Operation Nostalgia game. And I had to uh, give up the, the, the war games room temporarily because we had people staying. And at the time, I was just, I got to that stage where I was going into Overload. I thought, oh, just, I can't be doing this. <laughs> it's, uh, I, need a, I need a break, basically. And, it, and I sort of re-evaluated everything. That's when I decided to sell off my last of my uh, 15 mil and 10 mil and uh, just had a reappraisal. I think it's sort of keeping it at a level that is manageable. And, and you'll know from the podcast, it's, you don't want to get to the stage where it overloads you. Uh, but, uh, but you look around other people's blogs and uh, it, it's doing your bit for wargaming, really, um, and for, this, for the scale. Uh, and that's the other thing, because it's, uh, it's a small hobby. Uh, you kind of you, you feel it could be a lot bigger if more people out there knew how good it was as a hobby. Um, you know, it's, I know that people uh, speak quite disparagingly of Games Workshop, but you've got to give them credit. I mean, they they've got they're now a what a FTSE 100 company worth what's it billions. Uh, this is a war, it, it's a war games company at the end of the day, and from that, hopefully, the historical side of the hobby will get plenty of recruits in the future. Um, so, yeah, that's hopefully that's why I do the blog. Well, that's an absolutely fantastic uh, yeah. answer, John. Um, and you, you certainly are doing your bit for six mil because um, the, the showcase of the pictures that you've got on here. I've just been looking at the Blue Coat Regiment again, and that, for me, that would grace the cover of any War Games magazine or any article. Um, but you're right; it's difficult, and I, I know that. Um, Magazine editors will say that they can only print what they sent, um, and there's a difference between photographing things for a blog and for a magazine. But um, I, I'm, I'm with you that uh, I look at some. Of, I'm just scrolling down your page now and looking at some of the the pictures, and they were great. And any any war games magazine, I would be happy to pick up a war ma games magazine with a center spread of. Uh, the Battle of Grisberg, for instance, which has got this massive town in the middle of it, uh, and and troops just surrounding it, it's just uh, it's just incredible, and it's it's one of the blogs that I return to uh, time and time again. And there's always something I haven't seen or caught no, before. A... But they are hard work, though, aren't they? And I, I've I do have a blog, but I'm I'm rubbish at keeping it up to date. Um, and I, th I think you've just, uh, like you've said, you've got to commit yourself to that time, haven't you, to uh, do it. And I, I, had that, I had that little break with the podcast at the beginning of last year where I'd almost bitten off, I thought I'd bitten off more than I could chew until I could uh, resolve it within my own head about what I wanted to do with this. And I, I certainly fit, it certainly resonates with what you were saying because I, I read that post that you put up about you're going to stop doing the blog for a while and... Um, I, I was one of the disappointed customers, <laughs> uh, but was very pleased to see you come back to it because it, it's just a fantastic resource. 
Yeah, I, I, it was just a case of needing a break and reevaluating it. I think um, I've paid back a bit on the the workbench stuff, you know, keeping updates on what I'm painting because uh, I wanted to concentrate really on the, the battle reports. It comes back to a certain extent to the Terry Wise's book. Um, what struck me was his photographs of his games, uh, the, the the battles that he reported back on. I, I wanted to capture a bit of that in the way I, I you know, reported back on in after action reports. In the, so that the reader hopefully can see what's what's um, what's happening, but engages with them a little bit. Um, so yeah, it was really a case of concentrating more on that and just cutting back on some of the other stuff. One one thing uh, of interest that I've I've noticed as I've scrolled backwards and forwards is uh, your use, and I'm not sure if you still use it now, but the Perbeck train. That's uh, because at the time you've got TSS, hadn't you? TSS Phoenix with the Polisarian, and uh, then Purbeck came out. They were a Southwest company, weren't they? I can't quite think where they were were from, but something from the Southwest somewhere. Yeah, I think they were, they were based in Wimborne in uh, Dorset. They um, they actually made um, custom made me my harbour, which appeared in Hot Nostalgia. They it's popular in the South here. They um, Nine-inch square boards um, was the basic one, and they went up to 18-inch square, which is quite unusual because most of them are a foot. Um, but I, I collected those in the 90s, late 90s. Um, they are sh- showing a bit of signs of worse for wear, some of them now. I think some of the larger boards have sl- warped slightly. Um, but I, I intended to – I thought, no, I'll, I'll, go, I'll use the uh, Terry mats that everybody's getting because I like the way you could create the undulations in the terrain and it just was more flexible. So I bought several, and uh, I tried one out on uh, one of the American Civil War games. I think it was Winchester. And I thought, yeah, it is good. The quality is undoubtedly excellent, um, and you can create hills easily. But I find myself missing my boards. <laughs> I think it was just the textured surfaces of those boards that they created. It just, I don't know, it maybe it's just perhaps I don't know, sentimental, I don't know, but... I couldn't get, bring myself to give up on those. Also, the the coastal sections were really nice. I've um, I am gradually upgrading the river sections. The roads you've probably seen in the the Arnhem game. The the, the original boards had sunken roads designed really for fifteen or twenty mil figures. Uh, I've I've raised the road to surface level, um, created a, a more attractive looking texture to them. That's a tarmac road surface. Uh, so. Yeah, I think I should stick with them at the moment. But the the only other problem I've got with them is as they're getting older, they're not fitting quite so well together. And I'm going to have to do something about that because you'll see, and obviously in 6 mil, you've got some of them have got great chasms between them. And I'm going to have to look at how I can disguise that or improve the look of them. But, yeah, the Perbeck Terran was uh, – it was that one, TSS, I think, was the was the other one with people using at the time. But, um, yeah – I, I haven't got the the skill, the Terran skill making, uh, you know, the ability to make my own boards and make them look good. So I've just stuck to those and just I'll just revamp, just spruce them up now and again. Is probably what I'll do. Occasionally, are, are, they, are, they still, are they still available, John? No, I think I don't look. I think they they went out of business some time ago. Now I don't think they've. Um, I, I can remember. I mean, I'm in Dorset, and at the time. Everybody seemed to have perfect terrain around here. Uh, it was very, very common. Um, but, 
Yeah, I shall occasionally still use those uh, Terry mats. I've got one from uh, Geek Terran. Oh, sorry, yeah. Geek Villain. Geek Villain. Uh, right. Which, yeah, Geek Villain. I think it's, um, I'm toying with the idea of using it for Televera when I play that. I'm going to test it out. I spoke to him and said, what's the best one to use for sort of six mil Mediterranean style? Because uh, that's the trouble with my boards is they're really more designed from Northern Europe or North America. And he's recommended this one, which I've got. And I'm going to give it a try. So um, I'll, I'll see how it looks. But uh, So I'm not giving up completely on Terry Matt. Uh, uh, so, and see uh, the air battles I, I, I'll be doing and sea battles will be on Terry Matt's as well. But, uh, but yeah. So yeah, I've, I've um, when lockdown isn't on, I travel fairly frequently down to Weymouth uh, and stay with Martin Goddard at Peter Pig. Uh, and he's he's got some Perbeck still on his shelves. Um, uh, I think mats have become more popular because they're just easier to store, aren't they? Um, but but there are you're right. I think they lose some of the um, the tactile nature of it almost really, and that sort of work. Because I remember remember when Perbeck first became available, and they, they looked absolutely wonderful with those sunken roads and rivers when i was playing 15 mil back in the day um i, I never managed to manage to purchase any uh back then but uh yeah they've got uh, they've got a definite look to it and that coastal scenery that you've got is just gorgeous yeah they did they produce some nice you know for a commercial company they produce some nice stuff i mean they um at some of the shows down here uh, the weymouth show and that they, they had some nice displays on um where you know they the all the other interlocking hills, uh, which uh, uh, they were quite dramatic to look at. The downside, I think, for six mil is that they, they really were tailored more for the large scales. Uh, I still got those hills, and I'll still occasionally use them, but they are quite big. Um, and uh, you know, for for what should be just a a hill rather than a mountain, you know. It, um, yeah, there's that uh, perspective thing, isn't there? The, the scale thing, I think, with six mil that. Uh, you need to get right because a, a small hill in 28 mil is a is a giant precipice in in six mil, isn't it? It's uh, it's a different thing altogether. So, what's next for the blog then? The um, obviously there's a list of projects that are still ongoing. Um, I'm toying with the idea of the new projects that, that are going to be in the pipeline, which I've yet to. Uh, well, I think I might have touched on in the blog. One is the Punic Wars, which is an old favourite of mine. Um, and again, it goes back to Terry Wise's book, who featured Punic Wars in that. So I might back us um, Punic War figures. I've got a few, um, but I'm waiting for him to properly open his uh, shopping cart to get the rest. At the moment, I'm still buying figures from him for Talavera. Um, so Punic Wars will be a new uh, project coming up, and that will be historical scenarios initially, at least. Um, on the Polyonics, I'll be doing Televera, which I'm hoping to get on the board this year. Um, that will have about, well, I think about 4,000 figures on, something like that. Uh, it's, uh, I've just finished painting the Spanish at the moment. Um, and obviously the campaigns will be ongoing. Uh, and Zulu, uh, Rort Shrift, I want to try and get on the board this year as well. I want to get, Colonial has always been an old favourite of mine, but it's always been on the periphery of my hobby. I've, I've always wanted to do lots of colonial, but for whatever reason, it sat on the sidelines, and I've only just touched it a bit, bit at a time. 
But I'm determined to get Rorch Drift up there, followed by Isle Duana at some point over the next year or so, um, and then do more Colonial. But um, uh, well, World War Two is probably I want to get more Northwest Europe done. Uh, but that's probably about it at the moment. Other than the rest of it is as per the blog, which is <clears throat> the ancients, um, early imperial Roman campaign will continue. Uh, the Polonic Wars, obviously, the big campaign and historical scenarios. Um, the American Civil War uh, is, I'll be concentrating more on the campaign, but occasionally I will slot in historical scenarios with that as well. Um, what else have we got? Uh, so, and, and obviously, this is what we talked about. So, I'm trying at the moment to keep it down to those periods, apart from the Punic Wars, and not to add too many more wrong because there's plenty I could do. There's just the 12 projects listed there, John. <laughs> <laughs> just the 12. <laughs> I know, I know. It's probably going to grow. Okay, coming back to this. <laughs> I, I wish there are times when I wish if only I could just be interested in something like the Polonics. I envy people who'd spent all their time doing nothing but that. I know people like that who who do nothing but Napoleonics, but yeah, I'm uh, my my interests are far too wide and varied to stick to the yeah. one period. I'm afraid, but um, and generally, I can I can change from breakfast to lunch to dinner time as to what's floating my boat at the particular time. Depending yeah, on that's what I'm my reading or, Yeah, you read something, read read a new book, or look at a blog, or see a new line of figures, and suddenly uh, your head's turned, isn't it? It used to bother me at one time, but I've got to that stage now I couldn't give a damn. <laughs> I, <laughs> Good on you. I mean, other than trying to keep it within a manageable number, now I don't want to go completely mad, but I mean, all those that I've got on the go at the moment, I, it, and that's again coming back to the solo gaming thing, if I grew tired of one period, or if I suddenly get inspired to do one of those projects, I'll switch to it. You know, you, you, you're free to just do it. You don't have to worry about anybody else. Hence why you'll see some of my projects will sit around for a while and suddenly spur into life as I get interested in it. Um, all I can say to people, people are frustrated with it, I apologise, but hopefully in the labelling, anybody coming to the blog will be able to read the progression of each each campaign or project. Uh, and you, you're not just uh, land-based either, are you? You've got, uh, looks like you've got a fair collection of naval yeah, it's again. It it's an, it goes back to um, those early days. Uh, I think it was P. Dunn wrote a book called Sea Battle Games, which I got back in the early seventies. Uh, and um, I've always been interested in naval anyway. And in those days, there wasn't much around. I actually made my own one twelve hundred scale ships out of balsa wood, bits and pieces. And then, um, and one of them I've actually features on my blog. It was uh, Arethusa, I think. It's very basic, but I actually based it up and tarted it up a bit. I thought, whether they'll ever see action or not, I don't know, but I thought, uh, I'll just base it up, and it's just a a memory from days gone by. But, yeah, I've always had an interest in naval wargaming. It's never been a main period, but it's always been there, and I've incorporated it in campaigns or occasionally I'll play a scenario. Uh, I've gone over to mainly 1-3000 scale, uh, but I still have my old 1200 scale. I've got quite a few of those, which I'm going to use now and again. 1600 scale as well. I've also used in um, my Napoleonic campaign uh, one, uh, one 1200, no, hang on a minute, 1400 scale, I think it is. Yes. Uh, uh, ships from Timberland Dice, um, Napoleonic naval. 
again, it's supposed... I've, I've not done anywhere near enough that I would like to do in the campaign. I'm going to rework it a bit, which brings in more naval side to that, so there's more games. Uh, but uh, something like that. I'm also looking at... Um, Potentially, anyway, I've finalised it. But having uh, seaborne raids in the Polonic game, so, so I can bring in sort of like skirmishing type games. Working out of um, Youngsport, which is sort of similar to Lisbon, I suppose. Uh, I've got half a dozen gunboats assigned to raiding parties, and if I forget round to it, I'm going to experiment with various war game rules, doing raids up and down the French coast. Uh, again, using six mil. So, uh, and just to see how it, it plays out. So, yeah, naval is, is always been a, an old favourite. The um, one twenty four hundredth naval from Tumbling Dice. Are those the the smallest sort of uh, age of sail ships that they do? Are they they're quite? Uh, I think I think it is them. I, I think that you can get a smaller scale. I, I can't, oh, okay. I'm trying to think, but it's. I think anything smaller than that. I did try Langton Miniatures on 1200th scale some time ago, but they are incredibly detailed. I made a brig up. It took me ages. I mean, by the time you've done all the rigging, I'm the, the, the detail on the sails uh, and the ship itself is, was absolutely fantastic. But it would take quite a long time to get a fleet together and to make them look good. Uh, with Tumbling Dice, I found that in, on a fairly decent, a you know, half-decent paint job, they look quite good. You know, they, uh, they do what they need to do. So, uh, And then yeah. not only naval, uh, but you've got 236 World War II <laughs> 1600th aircraft. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so air, land and sea is all covered. <laughs> That's right. Um, it's not been, uh, historically anyway, in the past I've not, been a big air warfare fan but i quite like bag the hun the, the two fat lardies rules i thought they're quite good fun um i used them in that uh op nostalgia campaign i was i was running and i quite enjoyed it uh so i'm using them now in my op compass game uh, campaign and they are good fun and again when you put it into a campaign setting it just adds that extra bit of spice you know you get uh, individual pilots that can make a name for themselves um, and each, each air battle will have a consequence on the ground. It might determine in the next ground action uh, who's got air superiority or who has air support, dependent on that that air battle. Um, so, but yeah, I think it's you've got it's it's two fat lardies to thank for that really because the baggerton rules are I do find them to be good fun, and it's uh, it goes back again I suppose to um, when in 1970 when Battle of Britain came out, the film, and I went to see that at the cinema, and I was totally gobsmacked and taken in by that, and it, it gave me the urge then to collect some of these aircraft, but never got around to it. So, Well, uh, I've just spoken to uh, the Little Wars TV guys, and Ed, uh, who I chatted to on there, he's he's a massive fan of the, battle, the film Battle of Britain, um, and it... it I watched it again, actually, uh, not yesterday, the day before. It's just a, a brilliant film, isn't it? I've got the Bag the Hun rules, and I've got, I've got some planes, but I haven't got a hex mat, so uh, I need to, I need to purchase a hex mat uh, to get them on the table. Yeah, I I, I did buy a, a C hex mat from uh, Tiny Tiny War Games, is it? I think. Yeah, 
And because uh, prior to that, I'd used a template, which I found somewhere, I can't remember what it was now, but the, I cut out and, and mounted on hex, MDF hexes, uh, but it was very fiddly. So I bought that hex hex mat, and yeah, it, it definitely helps. But yeah, they are a good film. They are a good film. But coming back, funny enough, coming back to that Battle of Britain uh, film, at the time when they made that, I lived in Hertfordshire. And I can remember now looking out of my window and um, seeing, I think it was a Heinkel, and a, it might have been a Messerschmitt fly right past the house. <laughs> what? what <laughs> it was when they were filming. Yeah. Oh, no, I could see this German aircraft flying down this valley. I'm like, good God. <laughs> the war started. <laughs> that must have been an incredible experience. <laughs> it was a shock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Right, uh, John, I think we've pretty much got through the agenda, and I don't know if you can believe it, but nearly two hours have gone by. Uh, it's been absolutely fascinating listening to your journey in wargaming, and in particular your approach uh, to 6 mil. It's certainly putting a different spin on um, what 6 mil gaming is to many people at the moment. And you've, you've certainly put my head in a spin with thinking, oh, goodness me, <laughs> a six mil general to brigade army, that would be great. <laughs> uh, I think recommend it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, emulating what you're doing there on the blog, that would be amazing. Um, yeah, it's been fascinating, John, so thanks very much for your time. No, um, thank you. There's, there's two requirements I ask of every guest that comes onto the show. The first one is really easy and that you promise that you'll come back on again at some point in the future absolutely yes definitely yeah it's not put you off too much no good fun it's been good fun i didn't realize i could gas on for so long <laughs> I, listen I, I find with uh with people like yourself john that when people get talking about the hobby um it, time can fly by because it, it's all passion it does certainly it, does yeah yeah mm. Um, and the second one is uh, to ask if you would be so kind as to deposit a book onto the shelves of the God's Own Scale Virtual Library. Certainly. Um, I've been agonising over this. I thought, well, cause I, think, I think previous contributors obviously nominated historical books. I thought, oh, I don't know. There's an obvious one for me, really, and it's got, there's only one I can pick, and that's Introduction to Battle Gaming by Terry Wise, because it's, for me... It, it's the one book. I mean, I, I bought all of Don Featherston's books, Charles Grant's, Peter Young's. You know, I got collected them all through the 70s and all the books I've got on the shelves. If there's one that stands out above all the rest, it's that one. And Terry Wise, I think he um, he doesn't quite get the uh, attention that Don Featherston and Charles Grant gets. I don't think he had quite as big a name. I mean, a lot of people knew it, knew him, but whenever people talk about those days, it's Don Featherston, Charles Grant, Peter Young. But Terry, for me, it, it was he epitomised that airfix generation. When you you know you anybody who's interested in the style of war game that was going around, especially youngsters who couldn't afford twenty five mil lead figures, um, if you look in there, you'll see what a lot of us were doing at the time. Um, and it's also I can think it's been reprinted as well by the History of Wargaming Project, uh, and it's been uh, they've got a. It's been edited by John Curry, and I think they've added a bit to it. They've added uh, a, a forward about um, Terry Wise, and, and at the back of the book is um, they've added his three rule sets in there, so they've brought it all together at the back. But yeah, I, it, it's obviously not a historical book, but it's a wargaming book, and it um, 
I thought it really is for me. It's the one and only. It's um, it's still on my the original is still on my shelves in a better condition. And I, God knows how many times I've read it. Uh, it's uh, it really does capture that period, that time of the hobby, that period of the hobby for me. Uh, that that's not that hasn't lined up with Don Featherston and uh, Charles Grant. It's uh, it's a book that I own, John, and it's a book that probably like your own copy is somewhat dog-eared and looking battered but a prized uh, member of my collection and it will sit very well on the shelves of the God's Own Scale Library. It's a book I love, to be honest. There's there's another one that I like uh, called Practical Wargaming by Charles Wesencraft. And he's, he's yeah, another I've got that. game. That's another one, yeah. Yeah, he, I think he's another name. that he's, he, he is well known in amongst that sort of old school line of wargamers, but I don't think he gets mentioned quite as often as you've said about Terry Wise as uh, Featherston and Grant do, but it was that book that um, that really. Um, I mean, I obviously got World War Two up and running with Terry Wise, but it was that book that gave me a lot of inspiration for World War Two. Uh, uh, Charles Grant's, you know, battle practical war game. That's still on my shelves as well, in a better condition. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah. M- yeah, much loved, much loved. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, right, John. Uh, thanks very much for that. That uh, book will, as I say, take it pride of place on the God's Own Scale virtual library shelves. And I do promise. I keep promising. I keep promising to listeners that I will itemise every book that's on there and put up uh, an Amazon link that was suggested to me by Miles from Little Wars TV. And I, I must get around to it because uh, there are some great books up on that shelf. And certainly, uh, your own choice there, John. Will. Uh, sit proudly alongside them uh john thanks again for your time it's been a great pleasure to talk to you and i uh, wish you well with all your 12 plus projects in the future (laughs) (laughs) i I, I look forward to continued adventures of colonel best and uh i would i do wish you would take him out the line but i don't think you're getting too much (laughs) (laughs) i think his number might be up fairly soon uh but uh, I'll, I'll look forward to following that on the blog. And listeners, as soon as you've finished listening to this, get over to the Grey Mile uh, Solo Wargaming blog and check out all of the goods. Uh, okay, that uh, just leaves me to say thanks, John, and uh, hopefully speak to you again soon. Welcome back to Studio One here at God's Own Scale Towers. Hope you enjoyed that peek into the six mil wargaming life of John. Please check out and support his blog. It really is one of the best ones out there, promoting not only six mil but the hobby in general. On my own hobby front, I am finally in top gear and have the finishing in line in sight for my Antietam project. The last few figures are in front of me as I speak, and they'll be done by the end of the month. I really want to get all of the figures out and lay them down on an approximation of what the terrain will look like, and see what else I need to finish the table off, so whether that's 
uh, road or bits of wall and fencing fields, that kind of thing, just to dress that table so it really does look the business. And obviously, I'll keep you updated on the progress of that as I go. I'm fairly sure that my next big thing will be Blenheim, using Nick Dorrell's Twilight of the Sun King. It's a battle that has always fascinated me, and one of the big four that Marlborough fought. I have a few samples from Bacchus to paint up and see how I go. Franco-Prussian was the other alternative, and will likely be done at some point, but probably not this year now. I think a rest from all that blue will do me good. Uh, and I've still got many smaller projects running alongside, and they'll continue to run alongside whatever it is I decide to do. They are um, Guildford Courthouse for the AWI, where I've got the Continentals on the table and uh, picking away at those as time allows, alongside Rourke's Drift uh, for my own version of Peter Riley's uh, Write Your Own Rules um, booklet. And there's also a small Ancients game using DBA. But more on that, little surprise, next episode. And of course the caveat that any and all plans are subject to change at a moment's notice without warning. But that's Wargaming for you. Next episode I'll be talking to a new kid on the block with a new range of 6mm figures. That is really exciting. I've got a few samples in front of me, so I'm excited to talk about his new and growing ranges and uh, how he came to decide he wanted to sculpt six more figures. That should be out in around two weeks. I've got other interviews lined up throughout April, May and even into June, so there is lots more to come. Thank you for the response to the question regarding podcast length. It's a unanimous vote to keep things as they are. But there was one suggestion that I might look into, and that is breaking the episode down into more sections. So possibly halfway through the interview, maybe have a musical interlude or even an advert, if there's any manufacturers out there listening who would like to have uh, their product plugged halfway through the episode. Reasonable rates offered. I have to say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, so we'll see how things develop over the next couple of months or so. One thing I'm really looking forward to is doing some roving reporters at shows once they're back, um, and that may add something else of interest to episodes further down the line. Thank you to my new patrons who've signed up this month. It's greatly appreciated. I've finally begun to create some content for my Patreon supporters, which is essentially just a short video of me chatting away about my own thoughts on the hobby whilst I paint. Uh, nothing too exciting, but a thank you to those of you who do support the show. The videos will get a wider release three or four weeks after the Patreon release, so you won't be missing out if you're not a Patreon member, um, but you'll just get to see it a little bit earlier if you are. Should you wish to join my Patreon, please visit patreon.com forward slash God's Own Scale and take a look. No pressure though, as I've said many times, this podcast does not depend on Patreon supporters, but it does help. Okay, 
enough of me rambling on. Thank you once again for listening, downloading, and keeping this podcast going. Stay safe, play nice, and as ever, keep talking about sex. Brother Bertie went away to do his bit the other day. With the smile on his lips and his left ten and pips upon his shoulder, bright and gay. As the train moved out, he said, Remember me to all the birds. Then he wagged his paw and went away to war, shouting out these pathetic words. Goodbye. Lightning in the sky, but my whole thing's serious. Chin, chin, no.